0: Welcome to Directly Correct, a Peace podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Emily Pelosi. Sketchy. Feels weird.
1: No, he was actually super nice. He knows like, all my wife's family. He knows them all. Holy cow. Yeah. Small world, man. Small yeah, world. it really is. Well, I remember this is like right when we very first. Well, I'll tell this story in some other time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Emily. Emily, how's Hi. it going? Hey good how are you good to see you
2: so good to see you i've been looking forward to this call all day so excited
3: ditto ditto yeah. i haven't talked to you in uh
0: two years i guess
2: i know i know and from the looks of it you're in an amazon office
0: <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact cole uh emily just randomly was my matched onboarding
1: buddy when I joined the organization. So you uh, guys met on Match.com? That's so (laughs) cool.
2: Yeah, it was like a very specific Match.com for Amazon research scientists that just started the company. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you've heard of that one. No, but yeah, and (laughs) I remember you had started like right before COVID, right? Right, right. We never met in person. And I remember talking to you about how you would move there just to hang out in this apartment for a little while.
0: <laughs> that is uh, very accurate of the uh, experience I had. I, I moved to Seattle in like late March of 2020 because it was only going to last a couple of weeks and everything was going to get back to normal. And now I come to the office and no one's here. So
2: are you in Seattle now?
0: I am. I am uh, oh, right downtown.
2: Awesome.
0: Are you still okay. in Seattle?
2: Yeah, I live in Magnolia. I'm like three miles away from downtown, but I love this. This is like full circle. Like last time I talked to you, you you're like, I don't know where I should even live right now. I've never (laughs) been to the office and now I'm talking to you from an office. Love it.
0: I I must ask, like, is is this a fake background or is this like your most lovely living room?
2: I wish I could say it was my living room, but (laughs) it is a fake background. I didn't have one for a long time, but a lot of my coworkers have very stylish and posh-looking backgrounds. Yes. So I eventually succumbed to the peer pressure.
0: <laughs> but I am not. You're probably one of the few people that Cole and I both
1: know. H- how how are y'all linked? Yeah, that's right. How are we linked? That's a good word to use, by the way, since we worked at Century Link together. Oh. <laughs> It's now called Lumen, but uh, yeah, the company changed names. But yeah, that was that was back in the day a little bit, um, back in the IC days, the good old days. Yeah. Is this yeah. in uh in Louisiana? It is in Louisiana. Monroe. Was, uh, in Monroe, Louisiana. You gotta do your time, right? You gotta do some time in Louisiana. <laughs> That's what they call yeah. it. Yeah. Somehow,
2: <laughs> even if you're not from a program in louisiana or ever thought about living in louisiana you might find yourself there for a short time it,
1: um, it makes it makes you stronger it, it wasn't a huge shock for me since i'm from there but i imagine it was quite a shock for emily
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was looking back on it i'm surprised it's not more it wasn't more of a shock but uh i mean I, when I talk about my time in Louisiana and like the people that I met stuff, I like I was only there for like two close to two years. Um
0: That's a while.
2: And I <laughs> yeah, but I made I feel like I have more friends and connections from that time than like the ten years I've <laughs> been in Seattle. And my explanation for that is that southern hospitality is a real thing. And <laughs> people are warm and friendly and yeah, met a lot of that I still talk to, i.e. Paul
1: never. Well, actually, maybe we should tell people who you are. Um, so this is Dr. Emily Pelosi. She's the head of employee listening at Intuit and also an adjunct professor at Seattle Pacific University. Um, she's been doing this work for about 10 years in the talent analytics and research space. Uh, prior to working at Intuit, she's worked at both Amazon and Lumen, lives in Seattle, enjoys playing tennis, apparently is getting married, um, and <laughs> loves to talk about the future of surveys, so maybe we can dig into that a little bit today, um, but before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about what what is employee listening, and what are people saying about it these days?
2: Sure, um, so I actually have a, a question for you two before I start. Oh sorry.
3: no, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh.
2: I'm curious, what do you think of
3: what do you think
0: of employee listening? Like, what does that mean to you? I'll, I'll go. I'll go. Why not? Employee listening. I think about it in terms of getting the voice of your customer, i.e. the employees, and just staying attuned to their sentiments, their reactions, and this sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, if I'm being, like, hyper-literal, I, I honestly, when I first heard the concept, I thought it was, kind of like how people always assume that IO psychologists are like organizational therapists and we're just having like <laughs> listening sessions to hear people's problems, which I guess is kind of what it is in a way, but really like nowadays it, it's mostly surveys and then passive techniques. It's really those two things from what I can tell people always say, it's like, Oh, it's town halls and it's employee communications and all And it rarely ever is, but you know, <laughs> tomato, tomato. What do you think, Emily? (laughs)
2: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So you both touched on, like, how would I like to describe as as being two core aspects of my job? When I talk about employee listening, in my role specifically, I think of two things. The first are the surveys. So, Cole, you touched on that. Uh, We partner with Glint to do enterprise-wide pulse surveys life cycle surveys catch onboarding and exit sentiment, stuff like that, uh, pretty standard. Um, But then we also have this other, kind of my other side of the house, we call the voice of the employee. Uh, So you'd mentioned that Scott, it's um, a collection of active and passive data sources that are geared to give us employee sentiment data in between our pulse surveys. So all together, these two things work in conjunction to gather data on the employee experience. When I say employee experience, I know that could also mean a lot of different things. the way we think about it, um, especially with like an IO lens is attitudes around career goals, uh, engagement, job satisfaction, all of these important attitudes and perceptions that lead to um, on the job behavioral outcomes.
0: But uh, you, you mentioned like passive data there's probably various levels of accuracy to these sort of results, but like what, what kind of passive data are you collecting?
2: Hmm. That's a great question. Um, and that's definitely an area where we're expanding. But when I think of passive, I think of um, ways that people are crowdsourcing data, um, like having an always-on survey. I think that's technically active, but the goal is that it's, it's there in the background, almost like a virtual suggestion box in a sense um there's calendar scraping productivity monitoring software stuff like that like i think microsoft is expanding a lot in this direction with yes. their product diva especially um so those are some of the, the passive things like slack um i know we use a platform called slido that uh are you familiar with slido
1: i am not no
2: it's I have heard of
1: it, but now that you bring it up, I cannot remember. So can you please inform us? Yeah, yeah.
2: It's <laughs> I actually hadn't heard of it before I joined into it, but it's a platform for, um, use it for a polling feature. So if you're in a town hall meeting or something. Oh, yeah, it's like
1: Minty know. or whatever that's called, or Minty Meter. Yes, sure. yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so but- that's a good way. To see, like, oh, what's top of mind for employees? Like, what questions are they asking? What concerns are there? That kind of thing.
0: Well, what are employees saying? Like, I, I know that we had, like, we were coming, hopefully, through a pandemic. And, you know, it's been, like, a really tough time. And, like, we got the economy sort of, ugh, don't even want to talk about it. And, like, 2022, like, felt, especially, like, Q4, like, felt, like, really, really rough. Like have you, have you seen a change in employee sentiment overall? Uh, and what what are they saying? What
2: question. are they
1: saying, Emily? What are yeah. they
2: saying? <laughs> people saying? Well, I'm listening. We're
1: listening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we
3: hear you.
2: <laughs> I also should say other uh, other companies. I see employee listening a lot. I also see employee sense. Uh, Ooh, what's that? Other- that, that's just another name for this type of function. Like, so you can listen, you can sense, you're gathering data.
3: Yes. So we're like, taste, touch, feel,
1: <laughs> smell. we <ESP>. sensing them. <laughs> like seeing dead people.
2: Oh, God. Like, <laughs> we try to stay in this dimension most of the time. <laughs> um. To answer your question, Scott, I think if you're if you have a holistic listening program, you are getting all aspects of internal of the internal and external environment, right? Like I don't think
3: right, right. At this
2: time, you can do surveys and not hear concerns about what's going on in the economy, um, a potential session, cetera. You know, similarly, you should also be picking up on organizational health issues that that everybody's always working on, right? Like focusing on advancing people's careers, making sure they're engaged, um, stuff like that. So a little bit of both internal and external feedback.
1: Yeah, I feel like this session has been more of a words and terms one than most of our podcasts because now I want to ask you what does organizational health mean we've already done employee <laughs> sensing listening um I'm forgetting the other one but yeah what's org health
2: well when I say org health I guess I'm thinking of um HR I don't know HR issues broadly and issues isn't the right word but just like when you're thinking of org health, hopefully you're thinking of like ways to attract employees, engage them and retain them. So I think of all things kind of like part of that life cycle. And I can provide a short glossary. <laughs> after
1: this well, call. honestly, these are, <laughs> these are unfair questions to ask you because I feel like these are like made up HR words that become trendy <laughs> and hot. And it's like, and it's nobody's job to define what they actually are, but they sound good. So, so the, like, the, you're, honestly, you're doing really a really good job, Emily. <laughs> yeah, I, hey. I agree. I agree. But it is, it is an
0: overall function of the organization. Like to be healthy, you need to be able to attract talent, develop them, provide them a great experience, make sure they're productive. So, you know, benefit the overall organization. You're innovating, all these sort of great things. And if they need to exit, exit gracefully and it's, it's the entire employee life cycle that speaks to the health of the organization
2: yeah i like scott's summary better <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah i like I it, too. Of it
3: i and like it myself
2: it's got a solid continuous listening function going alongside that then you can inform every step of that process and iterate and find out what you need to do better. And it's fun doing this particular role at Intuit with a culture that's so focused on employees. That was one of the things that struck me when I joined is how much the employee experience is a focal point of the decisions that are made. So it's really great getting to have that impact because there's already so much empathy for the employee experience.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of TurboTax, so there's that. All right,
2: it's almost tax season, so we're going to be firing that up soon.
0: Are are there any, like, you you obviously deal with employees and, like, uh, uh, surveying them. Are are there any sort of privacy concerns associated with this? Kind of like uh, my old contact that was, like, really concerned about us gathering information from uh, employees. Are there any, like, sort of, there's GDPR and like now California has a new law that's going to severely limit uh, how we talk and listen to employees. What what are the implications and like, how are you dealing with that? That's a
2: great question. And I, I was starting to think of that too when you're saying how even the word listening can have a different effect depending on who you are. Um, that's a really important question. And I think there's, Kind of two parts to that. So, on the one hand, there's compliance, right? There's like buzz and bolts Yes. Do what you have to do to stay compliant with GDPR, CPRA, all of the other things that we have yet to come across that require more work on our side just to make sure that we're doing the right things and like legally respecting employees' privacy. Then there's also a trust aspect, which I think has a lot more gray area. Um, I always like to say trust is really hard to gain and so much easier to lose. So we have a set of principles we use in evaluating the channels that we use and channels think of data sources. So in the data sources that we use as part of our listening mechanism, um, one of our principles is around privacy. And um, we talk about the newspaper test a lot. So if Of were course, to use yeah. Yeah, this data in this way, you know, how would an employee feel about that? Or you know, what if someone wrote about this in the in an article? And like, what's the best headline they could write? And what's the worst headline? Um, so just being aware of how that looks, but at the same time, too, and this kind of getting outside of of privacy a little bit, I think um, employees' expectations are changing about what to do with their data. Um, Like Like, how? I think with like Slack, for example, or, you know, maybe Slack, or I'm trying to think of other Slido too, even other like large public forums where employees are sharing questions and feedback. I suspect there's an expectation to action that feedback, much like when you send a survey and ask someone for feedback, there's kind of this unspoken like, well, now I expect you to do something with my feedback. It's yes. The same. Now that there's so much more passive data available, people are using it so much more. Uh, now there could be a growing expectation that, you know, you're doing something with that. So that'll be interesting to keep track of.
0: So uh, Slido, not a sponsor could be, could be just throwing that out there. If anyone's <laughs> out there is listening. Uh, but like our, our Do you see a generational difference? Like our older employees, more tenured employees, more apt to be more privacy concerned than say like uh, newly minted Gen Z employees coming to the organization just because like they're so used to dealing with like digital technology and uh, having their data out in the world?
2: Yeah, I think potentially there could be something there. And when I think of generational differences overall, I always think of like, one of the underlying factors is probably your relationship with technology, right? So
3: clearly, yeah.
2: Depending on how
3: much you use it, <laughs> like me, for example,
2: I do use Instagram and TikTok. for the gram. I do it for the gram, <laughs> right? And I, I'm kind of like a of TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but I watch it through Instagram, like a good millennial does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually kind of appreciate how, like, if I'm looking for something, like wedding dresses, for example, I don't have time to look for every wedding dress under the sun and go through all these stores. I spend a couple minutes on Google searching for wedding dresses, and then on Instagram, like every fifth post is like a, a wedding dress boutique and i'm like okay this is kind of great like (laughs) i i know these these uh collections are being hand-fed to me and i need to be aware that like i'm not choosing what i'm seeing but it's also kind of helpful for me to be like oh well here's some dresses i like and here's some i don't like appreciate you google
3: (laughs) i mean tiktok
0: tiktok is a fantastic tool that people don't really know about i mean like cole sends me tiktoks of him dancing in the kitchen all the time (laughs) Yes, I think you need to send that to me now too.
2: <laughs> I need to see Cole TikTok dancing.
1: <sighs> you guys, you're something else. Um, well, <laughs> as we all know, choices is a, is an illusion anyway. So, did you ever really have a choice? But yeah, uh, I, I I will say we are in different TikTok bubbles because TikTok kind of just
0: funnel you into different areas, and uh, I see very few wedding dresses. Their algorithm hasn't really advertised for me in that way yet
2: I'm sure if you started yet. looking then you too <laughs> would
0: get in the wedding
2: dress circuit
3: <laughs> absolutely well i don't know where to go from
1: here uh, <laughs> one of the things we wanted to talk to you about today because i know that surveys play a big role in employee listing generally speaking and in our IO psychology background we thought a fun discussion might be just because Scott and I were brainstorming before this, and we we're like, we've worked with people in other professions who do surveys too and think that they kind of hold the crown. So, we wanted to ask you who do you think are the biggest survey snob? Is it IOs? Is it some other profession? Are there people, are there professions that are better at surveys than IO psychologists? Like, what are your thoughts on this, Emily? Such a funny
2: question. And I want to hear your answers too. I'm really curious. I don't think you're going to like my answer. I've been thinking about this for a few days. And I couldn't think of any other group of people that care more about surveys besides IOs. (laughs) I I think we might be the problem on this one. (laughs) Um, And I say that jokingly, but seriously, um, we have so much background and writing items testing them and psychometric and um i think that not everyone knows that there's a science behind surveys and um i've been in that conversation a couple times when i've been the person to share that and i wonder if that's if that's the curse of being an io
0: i i think it is i don't do much survey work anymore but uh, i do recall in past experience that. It- other companies that you'd have people throughout the organization that want to create their own items, and you say like, "Well, you can ask that, but that's a triple-barreled question, and there's no way you're going to get accurate results, or like you're asking like a dichotomous question <laughs> that you're not going to get what you want, and you get pushback." It's like okay, okay.
1: Early in my career, I worked at a, like a real survey research organization that does like mass scale things like the U S census and Bureau of labor statistics and that kind of stuff. And I would actually say if you're going to do any kind of like mail survey, like, like an actual, like old school, it's on paper survey methodologists wipe the floor with IO psychologists. Like they're just really, really good. They, they know their stuff backwards and forwards. I would say when it comes to things like employee sentiment, we know the best. And I'll say just for the sake of it, political scientists are probably the best at creating surveys that will slant results in their favor. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know if you've ever taken these political polling things, but they are just ridiculous a lot of times. They're worse than the triple-barreled questions, usually. So, uh, Cole, like, w- what are you
0: talking about? Like like sampling methodology and this sort of stuff? Is that where like the survey researchers are
1: really up to like, speed? I mean, honestly, I can't even speak to it. I remember there was a book written by a guy named Dillman. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. But it was like the tome of how to do like these sophisticated surveys. And, and it's a lot of stuff you don't even think about, like how many things that get sent in the mail get sent to the wrong place and don't show up. And that's like sampling error and stuff like this, things that you wouldn't even think about that they're making corrections for. And so oh, it was wow. very, I was very impressed by them. And it was stuff I like, cause I mean, I've never even done a non-digital survey and why would I nowadays? And so right. I, I was very impressed by those people and, and how they're able to extrapolate from results. So Emily, you do teach a uh,
0: internal consulting class at uh, Seattle Pacific. What, what are the biggest takeaways? What, what can we learn the most from like, if you had to distill it down to just like a couple
3: nuggets, what are the biggest takeaways?
2: Well, so I came up with the idea for the class a couple years after I graduated grad school and had a very clear idea of some areas where there was a gap between my training and then what I had to quickly get up to speed on in a workplace. Um, So the class is mostly geared toward those like mid to late stage students that are they're either in their first job or preparing to do that. So you spend a lot of time talking about the research methods and the stats that they learn and then applying those to real situations. So, like if you had if if a VP or some leader presented you with this research question, how would you analyze that? Um, right. And also walking them through what that looks like. Like when we have group discussions. I post something like that, people come up, like three different students will come up with three different ways of analyzing something and just to kind of walk them through, like these are actually all correct, right? Like there's multiple ways to get one thing done and but here are the ways to find the best path by making the right trade off. Um, So we talk a lot about doing that and then also there's a communication aspect too that's really important. one of our uh, one of the assignments that I have them do on a weekly basis that's gotten really great feedback is this email assignment. So they have weekly papers, so to speak, but they have to write it in the format of an email. Um, and so I- grade them. Oh, interesting.
3: Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's I good practice, so much, at least.
2: Yeah. I spent so much time my first few years on the job writing emails <laughs> and and trying to get my point across. Kind of really laboring over the words I was using and being succinct, but being accurate. Um, so I have them do that. The, the um, recipient is this fake VP that asks them these very short, direct questions, and they have to give a short, direct response, but with the right supplemental information. And so I give them guidance based on like clarity, scientific rigor, uh, brevity grammar,
1: spelling, et cetera. First of all, you sound like a great teacher, so <laughs> these uh, students are lucky. I do want to go back to the first part of what you were saying, though, about like students having different ways of analyzing the data and coming to results. What, what are your thoughts on like mixed methods research and the ability to kind of like triangulate results? I always call it, like if you don't have like a slam dunk experiment, using like the preponderance of evidence like from like legal like the legal backgrounds like how do you find a real finding even if you can't prove if it's causal I don't know what are your thoughts on that when you're teaching your students or in the workplace for that matter
2: that's a great question and it makes me think of the name of your podcast
1: because
2: I was thinking about (laughs) that last night one of the things I really love like truthfully the best you can ever get is directionally correct right like for social scientists we're talking about supporting hypotheses at the end of the day we're not proving anything and even when you have a causal relationship there's a whole bunch of caveats that could make you less confident um so that's the unpopular opinion that you know no one really wants to talk about but it's true so then in that case i really like things like fixed methods research and I like them more now and I do more qualitative research and practice than I ever would have imagined in grad school because it is another way to support your findings and just kind of lets you frame things in a way of like, like I, I actually heard someone say this a couple months ago. And I really like it. It just if you were like if you're trying to find the right direction and you've got some results, someone is asking you like how confident are you or how strong is this relationship they said well if i were a betting person i would put my money that this would happen um and so i like that framing of like this is this is directionally correct and obviously sometimes some decisions warrant way more rigor than that um but i like how you put that the preponderance of evidence
1: I mean, that that reminds me of the book thinking and bets by annie duke that, would like, that book changed my life, so I'll put a cut link to the show notes. But, uh, Scott, what were you saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of,
0: like, strength of relationships, like, Emily, how strong is your relationship to the Waffle House? The
2: Waffle House?
0: <laughs> <I've>, uh, yes, <laughs> the Waffle House.
2: I've never house. been to a Waffle House.
0: What? You lived in Louisiana for two years and never visited a Waffle House? I think there was Shame one, like, on a you. mile Shame. away from me. Never oh, met. oh. I mean, like, I... Once again, on TikTok, I saw someone talking about the Waffle House. And the question was like, is it good? No. Is it uh, <laughs> clean? No. Uh, Are they friendly? No. Is it fantastic? Yes. It is wonderful. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so the, the Waffle House is a, uh, we're going to present you with a topic. And you can waffle on it. You get two options. And it's just a just a bit of fun. So, you have two options. You have a ton of data, but it is terrible. It's just crap. Or would you rather have few cases, but you know it's clean and solid?
3: Ooh. Like Sophie's
2: voice. Um, I, I,
0: I sent you waffling already.
2: <laughs> Big time waffler over <laughs> here. Um, she
1: makes her own waffle. She doesn't get a waffle. Welcome, <laughs> Style.
3: Like we go
2: big on the waffles. Um I mean I'm I think my gut is gravitating towards the fewer but clean data. Yeah. Because I like I like the precision that can come from that and the accuracy. However, I could see that hurting down the road if I need to generalize in a way that I can't because I have
0: yeah, I think it goes along with your proposition around uh making sure things are directionally correct. I mean, if you need to impute cases or like go into like some sort of like bootstrapping, you have that option. But then again, I mean you could uh try and clean that big data set, but
1: you never know if it's gonna be right or not. How about you, Cole? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about a really bad big data set, I mean I think we've all kind of figured out at this point that bad big data was always a lie like you were going to get something oh, yeah. from it. Oh yeah. And I think about like if you have and I'm assuming your small data set is a good representative data set, that just sounds like real good sampling practices that you could extrapolate to a larger finding whereas a bad big data set is just bad data. Well, <laughs> what what, that's what, what, not what really what, telling you anything?
0: What if that small data set that's really good is like Old, but the big data is
3: fresh.
1: I mean, it's freshly bad data. (laughs) (laughs) Totally fair. Totally fair. I I think I still take the old good data.
2: It feels like choosing between like a ninety-five percent confidence interval and an eighty percent confidence
3: interval. (laughs)
1: When 80%, I mean, if you really dig into this stuff, it's basically like not having a confidence interval. In most psychology <laughs> situations, yeah. this is not a good thing. There's a lot of error. Yeah.
2: Pretty generous.
0: Yeah. Well, you're going to move into the uh, nerdery now? Let's do some nerdery, man. Nerdery. Let's talk some topics. Um, Let's see. So this is an article. Let's see. It came out 2020. The evil pleasure, abusive supervision, and third-party observers' malicious reactions towards the victims. So the theory here is, um, if you see a rival of yours that has a bad supervisor, uh, so you perceive them as a threat or whatever, that is causing people to engage it. So you have this like uh, Schadenfreude, Schadenfreude, evil pleasure, and seeing them kind of suffer under this abusive supervisor that's causing people to engage in even more destructive behaviors such as undermining, undermining incivility and interpersonal deviance. And they say that, uh, they have uh, support from this from two lag, uh, time lag studies, and they have uh, positive results, but, but you can, uh, alleviate some of this by having a, uh, high level cooperative goals to hopefully, bring people together in some sort of unity and increase civility.
1: Yeah. If you really want to go down a rabbit hole, look into something called mimetic theory by Rene Girard. I, I have done this. <laughs> you will lose your mind, but it's basically the premise is like competition is the root of like all wars and evil in society. So I don't know. Check that out.
0: I mean, that makes sense. Like all conflict really boils down to like competition for resources. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The word I I was thinking of competition as well. That that really stuck with me. Like, so I've been thinking about that since you sent me a sneak peek of the article, and I'm really curious what like what is that underlying mechanism? Like, what what would make you enjoy that? I mean, it's really <laughs> it's really a dark article, and I realized how little I've actually studied abusive leadership
1: um and dark triad think, type stuff yes. yeah
2: yeah we tend to focus more on the good thing for a lot of good reasons um the bad stuff is there too so i think you know, about that but i mean it uh, that sounds like a rough place to work you were part of that study
0: <laughs> that, that's not fun have you have either of y'all ever had like a bad boss that you got the sense that did not like you yeah, almost all of them. That <laughs> in a thousand. I love it. I not love quite it. a thousand, but close. Tell, so, tell us a story. Like, no names, but like, what was one moment that you were like, God
1: damn, like, why? I had a boss who never met with me. That was cool. Yeah, that's um, sweet. Yeah, they actually got another person who was not my boss to have my one on ones with me in their stead whoa, and that that really sucked. It was not good. I was pretty junior in my career and I was like, I needed guidance and it yeah. it's uncomfortable.
0: I had a boss that uh, despite being in the office directly behind me would call me and I would hang up the phone and go walk into her office. We, we got pretty adversarial <laughs> there at the end. Uh, yeah. But she she famously told me, uh, we pride ourselves on not training our employees." And yeah.
1: Yeah. There you go. Still don't know what that company does. Yeah. We should have a vent (laughs) session on here sometime. I'm just thinking of this as you're saying it. I was like, this would be very cathartic or maybe you would give us some schadenfreude. I don't know. I'm not sure I understand what that word means, to be honest. Well, have you ever seen like a coworker intentionally
0: trip up another coworker, like throw them on, not necessarily throw, well, I guess, including throw
1: them under the bus, but be destructive to, towards their work or, you know, this sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. I usually see it with like between teams. You know, you see one team that's kind of competing with another team and then they just like do stuff that intentionally screws up the other team and it's really messed up, but people do it. and it's with-
0: Withhold information, this sort of yeah. thing.
1: Not show up to meetings, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Is that uh, showing up in the employee listening, Emily? Yeah, is it? <laughs> John Freud? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's
1: it's Sean a it's a new, Freud. new construct. Oh nice.
2: Yeah. You know, Sean Freud has not come up as a top theme.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't risen for some reason.
2: But I'll I'll look for it and I'll let you know what I find.
1: <laughs> well let let's switch gears to something a little bit more. I don't know if this is more funny. <laughs> um, we want to talk about this article. It is called "Knowledge about the Nature of Science Increases Public Acceptance of Science Regardless of Identity Factors." And I guess this is a little bit, more uh, like, or kind of lame as well. Basically, if you tell people to trust the science, they'll fall for real science, but they'll also fall for pseudoscience too so they can't really <laughs> distinguish between what is science and therefore it, and it was kind of the, the article talked about it, regardless of your political affiliation people will fall for science and i actually think about and i know emily you haven't had a chance to listen to this yet because i hadn't come out we had this episode with marcus creed where he was saying somewhere between like 20 and 40 percent of published ios psychology research is like bad or fake and so even journal editors don't seem to be able to distinguish between, you know, real science and pseudoscience, which I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think about this?
2: It's almost like the takeaway is that if you tell people to trust you, they will, <laughs> which is totally counter to what I was saying earlier about how trust is hard to gain and easy to lose. I don't know, <laughs> but it, it. I think that is especially prescient right now, given all the misinformation that's out there like I'm sure I assume there's a lot of moderators in what's trustworthy and what what's not or yeah what kind of earns your trust when you're reading like I think back to um way back when I was an undergrad like my first psychology class we had a professor who gave us an assignment to go out and find like pseudoscience articles and like
1: oh wow that's cool i like that assignment that is cool
2: (laughs) yeah and we all brought them in and like compared what we found and like you know it's everything you would think like all these articles are like it's real science data analytics and like charts (laughs) don't make sense or have like they're like missing the labels you don't even know like how many people were in the study like really bad stuff like that so emily
1: i told you not to talk about my dissertation like that <laughs> well like w- when people say like trust the science it's almost like
0: held up like it's unquestionable which is is there anything more unscientific than saying okay this is the only answer you need
1: and f off because we got everything we need right
2: Yeah well,
1: When there's a reason it? why people are called con man con is short for confident giving people co- like untoward confidence in you that they shouldn't have and That's essentially what this is saying. I think this article essentially says that these
0: people like this that believe the science or, you know, trust the science are more likely to disseminate false claims that contain scientific references. So it may be false, but it says, like, you know, four out of five dentists prefer this toothbrush, you know, is it real? I don't know. Quote from Mark Twain.
2: yeah no that's that's scary honestly (laughs) but important do you think people also have different mental models of what science really is
1: oh are we talking about like the average human being or like phds in psychology
2: probably more of the average but i could see like between disciplines like you know there's been a long-standing debate about social science being different from other science
1: soft sciences hard sciences yeah that whole thing yeah Yeah. i think when people associate with science they associate with hard sciences let's be honest like that's what they're talking about and i think they assume that people are like using white lab coats and beakers and there's like smoke coming out of the beaker and they're doing something like that, or using a microscope. (laughs) I assume that's what people think science is, and it's probably a pretty trustworthy endeavor, but they also probably think it's a little bit of magic, because they don't really understand it, so um, I don't think anybody's spending a lot of time thinking about social science, let's be honest. No, especially when you start talking about like different phases of the
0: research project, like uh, the lit review. I I would say I'm conducting research, but in reality, you're going out collecting articles, trying to find background information, which you know I think people laugh at in this regard.
2: Yeah. It almost uh, feels kind of backwards, the way that we cite other papers. But you know, obviously, you don't want to plagiarize. But how often do you sort of change the meaning? Like, does it turn into a game of telephone? Maybe this is why 20%, 20% or whatever you're saying, Cole of our um, IO psychology. Research. I wish
1: that was why. That's not why. <laughs> no,
2: no. Let me listen to that later and yeah. break my heart on my own time. <laughs> well, s-
0: someone went back and reviewed the actual Hawthorne studies and found exactly what you're talking about. So over time, people decided cited secondary, third, fourth, fifth references. And like over time, the actual findings of the Hawthorne study were far different than what was actually conducted Mm -hmm. so i mean like yes this can't happen especially like you know you're moving fast like you're just like okay eh, cole said this was true and i'll believe cole
1: why not it's good enough for me me. it's good enough for science
2: trust the science
1: (laughs) trust the science
2: (laughs) that's funny you bring up like actually going back and looking at old articles like it is a little bit alarming how when you do that they're not using methods or statistics that we would that would really like it be anything we could use today. Like one I think of a lot is um uh, the cognitive dissonance guy Festinger.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That study was based on like 20 to 40 people and some T tests. And it's the basis for this theory of cognitive dissonance that's really never changed since he wrote about it. So you know, that, that type of methodology and sample size wouldn't pass muster in any of our top tier review journals today, not even the bottom tier. Uh, but it's very real. Well, this could
1: be question. fun or incredibly boring. How would you redesign it if you had to do it today? Like, <laughs> yeah, don't answer that. <laughs> I just realized as it was coming out of my mouth, I was like, like, this no. is going to be a stupid question. I, I can, I can <laughs> hear people clicking off.
2: I forget what he did to create a feeling of cognitive dissonance, but I think there are IRBs in place now that also might not be okay with making people feel uncomfortable for your research study.
0: That is true. I mean, like a lot of those foundational psychology studies, like, ooh, like Milgram studies, like you can't do them anymore. Can't do them. I, I will say, like, one uh, awesome thing about this article that uh, Cole brought up is uh, all four studies in it were pre registered, pre registered experiments. Oh, yeah. Open How science. about that? Yeah. How about for that? For the
1: win. That's for awesome. the
0: win. All right, Emily, uh, these people are going to put you out of business or help you exponentially. Uh, this is uh, pure IO pornography right here. This is turning words into numbers. Assessing work attitudes using natural language processing. So essentially, the uh, study investigated whether natural language processing, NLP, algorithms could be developed to automatically score employee comments to open text fields. And uh, they did this for 28 work constructs and it's freely available. The text-based attitude and perception scoring system, so TAPS, dictionaries, uh, which are made publicly available, So here comes the IO slant here. So the valence scores exhibited strong evidence of reliability and discriminant validity, particularly when analyzed on text responses that were more relevant to the construct of interest. Go figure. But I mean, this is really exciting. This is kind of like the holy grail of a lot of IO work, right? Being able to extract employee attitudes from the things that they write. Yeah,
2: I think that's really exciting and that's exactly where this field is heading. I, I think there will always be a place for surveys, like where NLP can take you. Um, I mean, it can only take you so far, you still need a good methodology, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can only extrapolate so far from one question, an open-text question, um, but actually one of the things I'm presenting on at SIOP, a little plug here, um, oh. in Boston, I'm partnering with a data scientist that's also on my team. His name's Derek Osborne. And we're doing a master tutorial on um, how to use some NLP algorithms in Python to analyze um, engagement survey responses. So, we're going to show people how to do that and then take it and using a grounded theory approach, you can map it onto constructs and build teams. So, basically, the problem we were trying to solve, and like many people are, is that you have these company-wide surveys with thousands, not hundreds of thousands of comments. How do you sort through those? There's sentiment there. There's, of there are themes, like yeah. really good nuggets. And you could never use traditional qualitative methods to analyze all that in a reasonable amount of time. So NLP obviously helps to move much faster and more accurately than a human coder. Um, So we're going to walk through a process to that so that other people can do the same thing.
3: Is this a, uh, is that a pre-event?
2: No, it's a master tutorial, but hopefully it'll be a workshop in the future because I think we could easily spend half a day, if not more, but um, I think, um, I think every IO needs a a good data scientist.
0: (laughs) Yes. what 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 are the implications of this though? Like, uh, you construct these questions to elicit a attitude, or like you have one sentence and you withdraw twenty eight attitudes from it. What does that mean for IO? What what are we gonna do with all this information?
1: That's be a run on sentence, that's for sure.
0: I love that. Yeah.
2: Well, comments <laughs> are so complex, right? Like. You can have one comment in response to one question, where it starts off positive, it ends negatively. Like people will say, "That is
1: true. Yeah, I love
2: my job, but I hate my teammates," or you know something like that. Uh, All right, but I hate this process, and it would be so much better if we did this. Like, that's very complex. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's still a construct validity question. Like I'm not sold that. Fully understand some like attitudes are so multi dimensional, like people are so multi dimensional, and like you know, maybe even if you can accurately assess someone's attitude about something from one question, what about those within person differences over time, and how does that impact the outcome that you're trying to predict? Um, uh, so I think it's a way to get us there faster, and I'm really excited to see what we can learn from these passive data sources, now that we essentially have better ways of using them. Um, I I think there's still a place for surveys. Uh,
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I I see it as like another tool in the tool belt, really. It's like another way to get the data, especially as you mentioned, Emily, uh, if you get 10,000 responses, like, what are you gonna hand code all that information? Like, no, at least it'll give you like a directional sort of sense of where things are going,
3: Mm -hmm. i know
1: there's even companies now that are saying surveys are dead you know you don't need them anymore because they can get all of the same constructs via just open text fields and things like that i know a few that are thinking of doing that i'm actually talking to somebody next week who just started it once i'm very curious from an iophd perspective what they think about that i'll Mm -hmm. let you know what i hear
0: yeah it's yeah. really unfortunate for uh, economists who just discovered that uh, you can
1: measure employee attitudes through surveys. Yeah, no kidding. We're not no longer just rational actors. We have <laughs> attitudes. <laughs> that was
0: a great article. That was a great article.
3: Yeah, for sure. Well, you
1: want to talk about tennis, Emily? Or we can what do you wrap? want
2: to know about tennis?
1: I don't know. What's a 3.5 person rank? What does that mean?
2: Um, that's a that's a solid player. There's a it's a scale of like one to six or seven, and seven is like a world class pro tennis player, and a one is like just started. So pretty large intervals in that scale. But so what I'm are you? Four point, I'm a 4.5.
3: Oh, oh gosh, dang. that's
2: pretty good. I aspire to 5.0. We'll see. It's a big leap.
0: <laughs> Fun fact, uh, I was on the uh, junior, my junior high uh, tennis team and we lost every single match. And uh, <laughs> I one time got the ball stuck right in that little like fork in the racket. That was about the last time I picked up a racket. I wanted to quit. That's
2: amazing. Hey, you're allowed to use the whole racket. So. <laughs> Thank um, you. Did you. Did you play singles or doubles?
0: Oh, doubles. So I had a teammate to lose with. It was great.
2: That's good. It's I like to share the responsibility personally.
1: <laughs> and that and other many bad choices led him to this moment. So <laughs> there we go. Just like failure. Not going to do that anymore. Failure. Not going to do that anymore. Snowboarding. No. Out. <laughs> All right. We've officially gone off the rails. So Emily, I've I really enjoyed this conversation and thanks for bringing your whole self to this. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, Scott, any final um, things you wanted to share before Emily gives the final word? Emily, so good
0: to see you again. Thank you so much for all the information. Uh, Congratulations on the marriage and the new home, hopefully soon. Uh, And I hope to talk to you in the near future.
2: Thank you. Yeah, especially now that I know you're down the street uh, and you've come full circle, finally going into the office, living in Seattle like you. Planned on doing (laughs) pre pandemic. Uh, But it was wonderful to see you, Cole. Always great to catch up with you too. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott and Emily Pelosi from Intuit. Thanks for joining us, Emily.
2: Thank you.
0: As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other
1: organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostics.